today on Ag News Daily. A lot of the pesticides are are not doing the soil itself any favors, and and most of that management causes soil degradation. Uh, and one of our really high priorities now is 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 the soil itself. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It's another Ag News Daily podcast episode. It is a Wednesday, and Delaney, it's also World Cotton Day. Ooh, that's a fun fact. I hadn't known that. You know, I did not know that it was World Cotton Day either until I was scrolling on Twitter earlier this afternoon. And I think it's kind of fitting because I did make an Ag News Daily social post about cotton harvest coming up. So it was pretty fitting. You got lucky with that then, didn't you? I absolutely. Or did you plan it? I guess I don't know. You could have planned it. That wasn't me giving you enough credit. No, I I didn't plan it at all. It was just, you know, by convenience. So, but I I will go ahead and just give myself a little pat on the back. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, that sounds a lot more fun than the day I've been having. I, my brain is almost to the point of being completely fried, but I have been pulling historical data on commodity market movements, uh, looking at counter seasonal rallies like the one we're experiencing right now in the market. So I guess to shed a little clarity on that, there have been, you know, roughly, this is not verbatim, but about roughly 10 different years where we saw the commodity markets rally during harvest as opposed to seeing more depressed prices. Because usually we should be seeing kind of our lows put in during harvest when we see quite a bit of production flooding the marketplace. And this year, we're seeing the opposite. And we've seen the opposite in about 10 different years here since 1960. So I've been pulling data on all of those years. So that's been my day today, Ashton. Yeah, I I hate to say it, but doesn't sound like it's too exciting. Research is definitely not something that I just absolutely love to do. But um Seems seems like a, a, a neat thing since it's only been about 10 years or so, like you said. But one other interesting thing that I was keeping my ears open for was President Trump announcing that he's ending coronavirus relief talks until after the election. I was just getting into bed last night when this came across. The, I got a notification on my phone from Twitter that this was you know being talked about, that it was trending. And so I looked into it a little bit today, and I am just a little bit confused, I guess, on on what's really going on with coronavirus relief. But Delaney, do you have anything that you would like to add or, you know, talk about well, with, with this? Yeah, so you're right. It's a little confusing what's going on right now in Congress because we've seen them work on it and try to move things forward. But then it looks like now we've seen President Trump kind of put the brakes on any further action for coronavirus aid. He, on Tuesday, halted negotiations with Democrats on a new coronavirus relief package, claiming that they were still insisting on $2.4 trillion in new spending. He also released a series of tweets that said Republicans had offered about $1.6 trillion in spending, but that House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is not negotiating in good faith. So it sounds like he's been upset about it. He said he's instructed his representatives to stop negotiating until after the election when he's saying he will win. 
and he will pass a major stimulus bill focusing on hardworking Americans and small businesses. And I'm sure farmers will be included in that as well. But that's kind of where I've seen things sitting as of today. It's very interesting that you, you know, bring up the point of him, you know, putting this pause on and, and basically just hopes that he will win and then, you know, release that stimulus. But it just kind of makes me wonder what will happen for COVID-19 relief efforts. If Joe Biden were to win the election, I think a lot is up in the air right now. And it really just kind of makes me a little nervous. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting election. That is for sure. Well, it is 2020 and I feel like everything is just interesting these days. It certainly is, Ashton, including some recent continued allegations over price fixing in the poultry industry. We've seen now the U.S. government step in and indicate, or excuse me, and indict six more chicken industry executives over some alleged price fixing, expanding antitrust prosecutions in its probe of the current $65 billion poultry sector. So I believe in June it was, we saw the Justice Department step in and indict three different executives. Now we've seen Again, them step in again and indict another six, including folks from Pilgrim's Pride. And I believe it's just Pilgrim's Pride and maybe a Tyson folk as well. Um, allegedly, they're you know, fixing prices, suppressing prices for producers. And so that is being investigated further. Yeah, I also saw that on on the headlines today, Delaney, but I just have one other piece of news other than, you know, talking about President Trump and the price investigations, and that is the Kyber pre-emergence premix herbicide that is coming from Corteva AgriScience. Kyber is the newest soybean pre-emergence herbicide, and it's a premix of three herbicide sites of action aimed at managing problem soybean weeds, including palmer amaranth, water hemp, and common ragweed. And it is preparing for sale in November for the 2021 growing season. And I was just keeping my eye out on that as, you know, we've been talking about herbicides and prepping up for the 2021 growing season, but I am definitely going to keep my eye out for that and see what the market thinks of this new product. That will be interesting indeed, and hopefully it's a tool we will be able to continue to use. Another tool that a lot of producers use is cover crops, Ashton. A new survey put out by Purdue University, as well as the CME Group in combination, did a survey of farmers to see how many folks actually use cover crops. And their survey results showed that four out of 10 corn and soybean growers intended to plant some cover crops this fall. And about two-thirds of those farmers say they've been planting cover crops for more than four years. So it seems like that has been a tool that's been sticking around and one that a lot of folks seem to be liking. Absolutely. And one of those folks is Joel Reddick, who we will be talking about later in the podcast when we talk about his use of cover crops as well. We certainly will, Ashton, but I tell you what, I think, I'm just double checking here, I think I've gotten most of my news reported for the day, 
So what do you say? Should we talk markets? Sure thing. All right. And as I mentioned, I've been <laughs> studying all day counter-seasonal rallies, which is what we're in right now. And corn and soybeans continue to pull through and rally at a time when they shouldn't probably be rallying. Starting off here in the December corn contract, up three and three quarters cent today to close at 388 and three quarters. The March adding three pennies to close at 397 and a quarter. In the soybean bits, the November contract adding seven cents today to close at 1051, while the January up six to close at 1051 and a half. In the wheat bits, December adding 14 and three quarters cent today to close at 607 and a half. The March adding 11 and three quarters to close at 610 on the nose. In the livestock markets, they had a positive day, even with corn and soybeans rallying as the live cattle, excuse me, as the October live cattle contract added 97 cents to close at 110.17. The December adding a dollar 15 to close at 113.10. In the feeder cattle pits, the October contract adding 37 and a half cents today to close at 138.50. The November up 35 to close at 137.87 and a half. Lean hogs also thing firm here as the October contract added 55 cents to close at 76.87. The December adding 70 to close at 64.57 and a half. And rounding out our markets with the class three dairy milk futures, the October contract shedding 16 cents today to close at 10, excuse me, to close at 20.38. The November losing 23 to close at 19.36. Without further ado, Ashton, let's kick it over to your conversation with Joel Reddick. And I am recording now, so here we go. Okay. Today on the podcast, we have Joel Reddick, a Western Kentucky farmer. Joel, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Yeah, glad to be here. We are certainly glad to have you. We always love talking to folks in the field, but why don't you go ahead and give us a little bit of a background about you before we get things started? Yeah, my name is Joel Reddick, uh, Western Kentucky. I'm uh, 23 years old and been back on the farm here full-time for a couple of years now. I went to Murray State University, uh, have an undergrad in agronomy. I spent six months after graduation uh, in Ghana working with a group called AgriCorps, um, working with education, agriculture-based education in middle school type settings um, in Ghana. I was there for six months. And ever since then, I've been home full-time working with my parents. Uh, my dad is the farm manager right now. My mom is the accountant slash uh, chicken keeper. She's, uh, she runs the four broiler houses we have. Uh, we've got about 1,500 acres. Uh, row crops include corn, beans, uh, wheat, if the price is right. And uh, we've got a couple different herds of cows. We have mostly cow-calf pairs, uh, about 100 head total. So we're relatively small for our area. Um, most guys are bigger than us, but we're learning how to make it work. Absolutely, Joel. And you guys are doing lots of stuff, including trying to incorporate some regenerative agriculture practices. So why don't you tell me how you got started in regenerative ag and where you got the idea to incorporate some of those practices in your operation? Yeah, yeah. Regenerative ag is, I guess, still relatively young, especially in the grand scheme of, of modern agriculture. Uh, we learned about regenerative ag first time 
at the National No-Till Conference, I believe it was 2017. Um, and Ray Archuleta is credited with um, with us hearing it the first time. Um, and he had a talk about how the soil is alive. And a lot of the modern practices today, including uh, tillage and uh, synthetic fertilizer use, um, a lot of the pesticides are are not doing the soil itself any favors, and and most of that management causes soil degradation. Uh, and one of our really high priorities now is 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 the soil itself, and and maintaining and and building the land for for the land that we own, as well as for our landowners. So what kind of practices are you really implementing in your operation to be more sustainable and incorporate that regenerative agriculture? Right. So we sold our last piece of tillage equipment three years ago. Uh, The majority of our acres have been no-till for six or seven years. Uh, So this, the no-till started before the regenerative ag started. We didn't really know we were heading down this path, but it just made sense. Uh, we've got a lot of rolling hill ground that is very susceptible to erosion. So, so just the soil saving from no-till is, is beneficial. Uh, in about 2017, we started playing with some, some cover crops. Uh, we started small with just cereal rye and, and burning it down in March or April uh, ahead of our, our corn crops especially and uh, burning that down at around knee high. But uh, over time in 2018, we uh, had some rain that prevented us from spraying when we wanted to. So the cover crop got a little bigger and we just planted right into it. We, uh, time was short and we, we just tried it and it went really well. The beans did really well and we were um, pleased with it. So we started doing a little more and we heard about Ray Archuleta and his talk and, and got exposed to the, the regenerative soil health principles. And we have slowly been converting all of our acres to cover crops. Uh, this year, I'm hoping we get 100% uh, cover crop. And that's, that's a difficult thing to do with, with time uh, being a factor. It's, it's hard to get good cover crop establishment. Um, into November in our geography, it tends to get wet and cold um, and muddy. But we, we are incorporating really diverse cover crops. Uh, right now, I'm actually on the drill. And we are planting 11 different species, um, and there's various legumes and cereal grains and a few brassicas uh, to do. To each of those do different jobs for us: um, erosion control, uh, weed weed pressure. We've seen drastic reduction in weed pressure just from the really big cover crops, uh, and those two things are are easy to see. Uh, erosion is on some acres is non-existent and on every acre it's it's significantly reduced and that that translates to dollars um, not immediately but certainly down the road we know that topsoil is is a very valuable commodity that that you really can't put a price on Absolutely, Joel. You make a lot of good points, and I, I really like hearing about these new practices that that folks are implementing but implementing these new practices has to come with some challenges. So what are you seeing as most challenging trying to make this difficult transition? Corn has proved to be pretty challenging. Uh, We planting into the covers, first of all, it doesn't require specialized equipment, but it does require 
specialized thinking. Uh, you can't just go out um, like you've always put corn out and uh, even just bare no-till conditions. Uh, getting through the amount of residue that we do is is tricky. Uh, you've got to have the planter set up well. Uh, you don't have to have any certain parts, but we we run a Kinsey planter and you just make sure things are working like they should, um, have good downforce. Uh, we have hydraulic downforce, but that's not required. Uh, it's just what we have. I've seen guys successfully do it with air. Uh, but you have to pay attention to the residue um, and the, the stage. Uh, the bigger the cover crop, the sometimes the easier it can be to plant into. It's kind of counterproductive, but once it, it reaches a point where about six feet tall and so thick you can't walk through it that the planter just mows it down, and you, you almost just have to look forward, just set it in the ground and, and double-check a few times, obviously, but but you just have to sail through it. and. Um, and don't look back until the corn's at like ankle high because it can it can be scary and intimidating if you if you haven't done it before. But uh, almost every time we've seen corn be able to come through it. So Joel, when you're looking at the future of your operation and the future of sustainability, regenerative agriculture, where where do you see this going for you? Well, in our immediate future, we're trying to find more niche markets that that we can cater to in our immediate area. We've got uh, beef cattle, and we're going to try to start marketing that direct to consumer rather than taking it to the sale barn and and actually marketing it as a regeneratively raised product and and try to tell our story um, uh, about how we raise the animal and how we manage the land that that has numerous benefits to to the soil um, and to to our ecosystem that we're managing, uh, and we I think a lot of people in in my generation are are very aware of of different stresses that are happening uh, in regards to weather, with regards to land. I mean, they they aren't making any more of the land. I've heard that said several times. Uh, so we need to take care of what we have. I mean, and that's I mean we've value it certainly certainly we value it there's an auction last week that land's going uh, really high around here and uh, we've got to take care of what we have and one of the best ways to do that is to tell our story about how we're managing our land um, and hopefully people will be very receptive to that story and be willing to pay us a little more for our products that that we believe are superior i mean I, i've some of our beef is, is really good, and I've had other producers that are managing in systems this way for longer than we have, and it's it's top-notch. Um, and I know that may make a lot of people mad, a lot of the corn-fed beef, and, and I don't have a problem with corn-fed beef, but I've, uh, I've got to make a living and find a way to, to make my future here. And uh, this niche market may be the way forward for us marketing more of a premium-type product. Absolutely, Joel. And I was just kind of eating up everything that you you just said. And it's it's encouraging to know that, you know, as older farmers age out, these younger farmers like yourself are trying to be more sustainable and efficient and really help our environment right. and incorporate these practices. But for our listeners who want to follow along with your story and possibly will buy some of this regeneratively raised beef, where can they get in contact with you? 
So we have a farm Facebook page called Reddick Farms. It's uh, pretty simple. I just started it this summer, and we I post a lot of pictures of just how we're raising uh, our row crops different and a few pictures of how the, the cows out in the pasture. And we don't have any beef right now. It's currently still on the hoof. Uh, the steers are being brought to wait, and it should be sometime next spring, uh, next, next summer before we have some steers ready. Um, but we are looking forward to moving down this road. There's a lot of opportunity, I think, and there's there's momentum uh, behind this regenerative movement. And every time I turn on a podcast or open a magazine, there's there's an article about sustainability and the, the place that regenerative agriculture has uh, in accomplishing sustainability goals. It certainly is a hot topic. So thank you again, Joel, for coming on and you know, shedding some light on regenerative agriculture and sharing your story. We truly appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, guys. Thank you again to Joel Reddick of Reddick Farms in Western Kentucky for coming on the podcast today to talk about his operation or his family operation, I should say, and regenerative agriculture practices. Yeah, I think, um, you know, there's a lot of folks trying new things out there, and it's pretty exciting. Absolutely, Delaney. And we are always sharing exciting things going on in the world of agriculture, which you can follow along with on our website at agnewsdaily.com and on social media at agnewsdaily. With that, Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.